Well, before we turn to the sermon, I do want to take just a moment to express my deep gratitude and my love to you for the privilege it's been to serve as one of your pastors uh, for these last number of years. As Kevin mentioned in the pastoral prayer, uh, you know by now that I've accepted a call to serve as an associate pastor at Faith Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, and Stacy and I are preparing to make that transition in the coming weeks. And while we're excited uh, about where it seems the Lord is leading us, following him there means parting with a church that is very near and dear to our hearts. As I've reflected on what it means for us to say goodbye to UBC, I'm reminded that the Christian life is a series of comings and goings. This side of heaven, the chessboard belongs to God, and he is constantly moving his pieces around as he sees fit. The words of the Basil Manley hymn, Soldiers of Christ in Truth Arrayed, have been on repeat in my mind. We meet to part, but part to meet when earthly labors are complete, to join in yet more blessed employ in an eternal world of joy. We meet to part, but part to meet. For now, we prepare to part, but we part to meet again in that land where congregations never break up and Sabbaths have no end. There's so much I could say about how much we've been strengthened and built up and encouraged and established in the faith because of our time at UBC. Being a member here, then joining the staff, then becoming one of your pastors has been one of the greatest joys of my life. I'm grateful to God to have had these past seven years here serving alongside you at UBC. You've helped Stacy and me and my children know our Bibles better, to cherish more deeply the beauty of the local church. You've taught us what it looks like to love one another just as Christ has loved us. God's kindness to us, we've had the privilege of being a part of two healthy churches over the last decade of our lives. Lord willing, we go to join another. But before we do, UBC, thank you. Thank you for investing so much in me. Thank you for loving Jesus so well. Thank you for loving one another so well. And thank you for loving my family so well. Please do be praying for us as we prepare to, to make this move and for us as we prepare to knit our hearts in love to a new people that the Lord is leading us to. Know how much we love you, how grateful we are for you, and how much we will miss you. We meet to part, but part to meet. Well, let's pray and then we'll get to work. Father, thank you for these saints. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the time that you've given me and Stacy and my family to, to be among them. God, I pray that you would continue to build them up in love for Christ. That you would continue to make them hungry for your word. That you would continue to root and establish and equip them in the work of ministry by the power of that word. And God, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would satisfy us with the bread of life that you would grow our affection and our love for Christ, the good shepherd. We pray that we would decrease. And in these next moments, 
he would increase in every way. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, 55 years ago this month, the Beatles released what would become one of their biggest hits. All you need is love. It's a catchy, lovely tune, and I'm sure many of you are already singing it over in your heads as I speak. Love, love, love. All you need is love. It's a wonderfully idealistic and trite message, isn't it? But is it really that simple? Is love all we really need? After all, those of us who've loved anything at any level in this life know just how difficult love can be. For love is loaded with all kinds of requirements and demands. Love for your spouse requires that you make countless sacrifices for their good. Love for your kids requires you to work hard to provide food, clothing, shelter, and an education for them. My love for you as one of your pastors has required me to devote myself to a ministry of the word and prayer so that you might be spiritually nourished. Even something like love for your dog requires that you fork over thousands of dollars every time you have to take them to the vet. You get the point. All love requires something of us. And those those requirements are proportional to the object of our love. The higher or more excellent the love, the object, the greater the demand that that object will make of us. So if all these earthly loves make these kinds of high demands of us, then how much more will love for Christ, the highest of all loves, require of those who've been purchased by his blood? If we say we love him, then what will that love demand of us? Well, that's the focus of our sermon passage today. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 21. Verses 15 to 19. John chapter 1, John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. The gospel of John has been called the gospel of belief. The word believe occurs 98 times in the book. The apostle John, who wrote the book, even tells us that at the end of, at the end of chapter 20, that believing in Jesus is the reason he wrote the gospel in the first place. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In fact, John organizes the entire book around the framework of believing. The book is flanked by a prologue that starts in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, and then an epilogue in chapter 21. And everything in between is meant to highlight Jesus' teaching and ministry leading up to that final week in Jerusalem, beginning in chapter chapter 12, where John then kind of zeroes in on Jesus' discourses with the disciples and his subsequent death and resurrection. But alongside this theme of belief, John weaves weaves these threads of love. So for example, on the heels of a conversation with Nicodemus in John 3 about the nature of belief, we get John 3.16, and for God so loved the world. 
In John 13, Jesus commands his disciples to love one another just as he has loved them. Then in John 14, 15, he tells his disciples that if they love him, they will keep his commandments. And then in our passage today, the resurrected Jesus appears on the shores of the Sea of Galilee while several of his disciples are fishing. He grants them a miraculous catch of fish, then sits with his disciples and serves them breakfast on the beach, where John allows us to eavesdrop on a conversation between Peter and Jesus, in which Jesus asks Peter not if he believes in him, but if he loves him. We pick up their conversation in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now this passage comes on the heels of two very important passages focusing on that theme of belief in chapter 20. The disciple Thomas, believing in Jesus after he touched the nail-pierced hands of the resurrected Christ in that purpose statement we just read from verses 30 to 31. So given the flow of thought of John, we'd almost expect Jesus to ask Peter a different question. Not, Peter, do you love me, but Peter, do you believe me? But that's not what, what he asks. Three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? Why? What's the connection between believing in Jesus and loving Jesus? Well, I think it's, it's because in Jesus' mind and in John's gospel, one of the things we see is that loving Jesus is at the essence of believing Jesus. Love for Jesus is the fountainhead out of which our belief in Jesus flows. And out of that flows all the requirements of that love and belief, which is why Jesus asks Peter if he loves him and then basically tells him to prove it three times. In Jesus' mind, love isn't, isn't some empty platitude that we can just flippantly throw around with him. There's nothing idealistic or trite about it. It's a loaded word in Jesus' vocabulary. And it comes with a whole host of demands that you and I as his followers better be ready for. And in this passage, we see Jesus make three in particular. He makes three requirements of that love in particular. Those who love him must 
receive his mercy, feed his sheep, and follow his lead. And those are the three requirements that, we're gonna, that are going to serve as our three points today. Love for Jesus means we must receive his mercy, feed his sheep, and follow his lead. So point number one, requirement number one, receive his mercy. That opening clause in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, pulls us back into the previous verses of of chapter 21. And it's important for setting the context of the passage. So Jesus had just revealed himself to his disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, then uh, subsequently gathered around a fire to share a meal with them. And then as breakfast is wrapping up, Jesus turns to Peter and he has the ensuing conversation with him. Three times he asks Peter, do you love me? And the first of those questions It assumes that the disciples are still there within earshot of them. Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And while some commentators will argue that that the undefined these refers to the fish or to the fishing gear, I think the context is showing us that, that what Jesus is asking Peter here is, Peter, do you love me? more than these other disciples do. Why does, that, why does that matter? Why does that question matter? Well, because Peter has always shown the tendency, bless his heart, to advance the, the strongest personal boast about the superiority of his love and devotion for Jesus, even in the presence of his fellow disciples. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, it was Peter who who boasted, I will lay down my life for you, while all the other disciples remained silent. On the night, it was also Peter who boasted that he would never abandon Jesus, even if all the other disciples fell away. It was Peter who cut off Malchus's ear on the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested. No no other disciple took greater comfort in his own effort and the strength of his own love than Peter did. But it was also such confidence in himself that that would lead Peter at times to confront Jesus about what kind of Messiah he expected him to be. It was Peter who pulled Jesus aside in Matthew 16 and rebuked him when he predicted his own crucifixion, telling Jesus that these things would never happen to him. It was also Peter who couldn't stay awake while Jesus prayed In the garden, and it was Peter who publicly disowned the Lord not once but three times on the eve of his crucifixion. So, this is why I I think Jesus asked Peter the same question three times. Jesus is, in effect, recreating the scene of Peter's denial. Only twice in John's gospel is a charcoal, charcoal fire mentioned. The first in chapter 18, verse 18, at the scene of Peter's denial. And then here again in 21, verse 9. So Jesus, this is what Jesus is doing. He's connecting Peter's restoration here in this passage to Peter's denial. So that Peter can be broken down, forgiven, and recommissioned in front of the other disciples. Peter's three responses to Jesus, they further testify to this. 
Each time Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, Peter gives the same answer. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You can kind of feel the you can kind of feel Jesus probing the scalpel deeper and deeper into Peter's heart each time he asks that question. And unlike previous versions of Peter, Peter no longer appeals to the strength of his own love, but rather to Christ's own knowledge. Even though I've failed you, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. And each time Jesus accepts his response and recommissions him to serve him and his people. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 17, Jesus asks Peter a third time, do you love me? And this time, the dam holding back his heart breaks wide open. The text says that Peter is grieved and cries out to the Lord, Lord, you know everything. You already know that I love you. Peter can no longer appeal to the Lord knows everything. He knows Peter's sin. He knows his weaknesses. He knows his failures. He knows about the betrayal. Peter's utterly exposed before the one who sees and knows all things, including his very heart. And that's enough. That's enough. Jesus then affirms Peter's love and once again confirms him to feed his sheep. Just as, he's, just as Peter had disowned Jesus three times, Jesus requires Peter to make this simple yet profound confession three times, showing us that love for Christ, love for Christ can't be built upon the shifting sands of our own brute strength but only upon the bedrock of Christ's divine mercy. This is why Peter was grieved. Because the presence of the crucified Savior, the smell of that charcoal fire, the threefold repetition of Jesus' questions, all of it, all of it was a spiritual sledgehammer breaking down the facade of of Peter's own self-righteousness. This is the mercy of Christ at work in the heart of a broken and repentant sinner. It is the starting line of God's love for us in Christ and our love for him. With great mercy, Jesus bruises us, grieving us to the point of repentance and godly sorrow over our sin, just like we saw last week in 2 Corinthians 7. And then what does Jesus do? He lifts us up, restoring us to fellowship and healing our wounds with the balm of his tender mercies. I love the way that the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs puts it in his book, The Bruised Reed. If you have not read that book yet, go to the bookstall as soon as I'm done and buy that. In reference to the kind of bruising God does in order to help us feel our need for for his mercy, Sibs says this. But if we have this for a foundation truth, that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, there can be no danger in thorough dealing. 
It is better to go bruised to heaven than sound to hell. Therefore, let us not take off ourselves too soon, nor pull off the plaster before the cure be wrought. But keep ourselves under this work until sin be the sourest and Christ the sweetest of all things. That's ultimately what's at the heart of Jesus' question. He wants Peter to taste and see the sourness of his sin and Jesus as the sweetest of all things. Do you love me, Peter? Am I the sweetest of all things to you? If you were in the place of Peter, I wonder how you would stand up under the scrutiny of that question. The crucified and resurrected Son of God looking you square in the eyes, the sting of your sin flooding into your heart asking you, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Am I the sweetest of all things to you? Friends, we are all Peter in this passage. We are all Peter in this passage, for we all need, we are all in need of Jesus' divine mercy to restore us to right standing with him and with God. For we all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us to our own way. Each of us, like Peter, have denied Christ with our sin, and we deserve to be punished for it. And yet, in love, Christ bore that punishment in our place on the cross. Our sin and its consequences were laid on his shoulders. And now he's able to make intercession for us with the Father, calling us to receive his tender mercy and to be restored into fellowship with him forever. If we turn from our sin, we place our faith in him. We don't have what it takes to save ourselves. We are hopeless without the radical and divine mercy of Christ. Our love is weak and our sin is strong, but Christ's mercy is more. It is infinitely more. So come to him. Come to him. Receive his mercy. Don't reject it. Peter could have rejected it. He could have relied on his own self-righteousness again, or he could have looked to his sin and believed that there wasn't enough mercy in Christ to cover it. But he didn't do that. Every time Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, Peter looked to Christ. He had learned the lesson and had stopped looking to himself. And it was the strength of Christ's love for Peter, not the strength of Peter's love for Christ that secured his salvation. No longer was Peter trying to prove his love for Jesus. Now it was Jesus proving his love for Peter. And it was that love, it was that love that led him to receive Christ's mercy, which then gave him a job to do. Which brings us to our second point. Love for Christ means we must also feed his sheep. So requirement of love number two, feed his sheep. 
Each time Peter affirms his love for Christ, Jesus commands Peter to put that love into practice by caring for his people. In effect, Jesus is is saying, love me, love my sheep. And notice how Jesus describes Peter's ministry in these verses. He describes it with verbs, not with nouns. He's not to demonstrate his love for Christ in who he is, but in what Jesus calls him to do. And he's called specifically to tend and feed Christ's lambs and sheep. Now, some have made much out of the variation in the terms here. Some believe that the lambs are new converts and the sheep are old ones. But I'm not convinced that Jesus' words really carried any such meaning. There's no reason to assume that the change in words here is due to anything but John's stylistic preferences. This is typical of, of John's writing style. And it's clear from, from chapter 10 that Jesus' sheep are those who hear his voice and believe him. And in Luke 10, Jesus refers to his own disciples as lambs. So I think the terms are mostly synonymous. The point is, Peter's love for the Lord is now to be put on display in how he cares for those Christ died to save. And what's striking about Jesus' charge is, is the nature of the service Peter's called to assume. Jesus essentially calls Peter one of his own sheep and then commissions him to be an under-shepherd and the care of his sheep. He says, one author puts it, a sheep-turned-shepherd. And we see this in the possessive pronouns that Jesus uses in reference to the sheep. Jesus doesn't say say to Peter, hey, Peter, tend your flock. No, three times he says, tend my flock. The sheep are Jesus' sheep, not Peter's. Which means Peter's not to assume some superior office and lord himself over the weaker sheep. No, he was to give himself over and over and over as a sheep-turned-shepherd in love and service to Christ's people. And yet, there is a uniqueness to Jesus singling out Peter in this passage. He doesn't have this conversation with John or Matthew. He has it specifically with Peter. Why? Well, I don't think it's because Jesus is establishing the primacy of Peter as the first pope of the church with rights of governance and authority over the other disciples. This is how many Roman Catholic scholars will read this passage. But I think that's a stretch. There's nothing here that that points to Peter's preeminence or his authority over the other apostles. And and Peter himself certainly didn't understand him in this way. For in 1 Peter 5, which Claire read for us earlier, he calls himself a fellow elder, accountable to the same chief shepherd that you and I are all accountable to. Of course, there's something distinct about Peter in the founding of the early church, but it's not a distinction that deals with his ruling authority. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. The distinction here is about Peter's restoration to service as an apostle, not his elevation to primacy. But embedded in this is an important lesson about the nature of what it means to be a pastor. We see this in the verb that Jesus uses in that second imperative to Peter in verse 16. Tend my sheep. 
The Greek word there literally means to shepherd or to care for the flock. It's where we get the word pastor. So Jesus is is giving Peter a lesson and what it will look like to pastor his people, showing him that he's to trade in his fishing nets for a shepherd's crook. And what is that crook that he puts in Peter's hand? Is it his own inherent authority? Is it his charisma or his ability to draw a crowd? Is it how many Twitter followers he has or how many people subscribe to his podcast? No, none of those things. It's how he handles the word of God. The New Testament is clear that the chief way every pastor is to care for God's people is with God's word. God's word is at the heart of what it means to shepherd Christ's people. Which is why Jesus uses the verbs feed and shepherd to describe the nature of the work. Every pastor the chief shepherd calls into his service is called to feed the flock of God, the word of God. I don't know what you think the job of a pastor primarily should be, but that's it. That's the job. Because if God's people are going to grow, mature, and flourish, then they must be fed a steady diet of God's word. Nothing else is going to do the trick. Only God's word will nourish the sheep and bring growth. Peter figured this out. That's why he wrote in 1 Peter 2, 2 to 3, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. So, to my fellow elders in the room, to every aspiring elder in the room, heed our chief shepherd's orders. Feed his sheep, tend the flock that he's entrusted to you. And do it with the crook of God's word that he has put in your hand. Even if the time comes when the sheep aren't hungry for this word anymore and and they turn away from listening to the truth and they wander off looking for something different to eat, do not stop feeding them the good food of God's word. Keep shoving the bread of life in front of their faces. Don't let yourselves become the kind of negligent shepherds that God condemns in Ezekiel 34, who scattered the sheep and led them into slaughter because they didn't care for them. They didn't teach them God's word. And members of UBC, you're not off the hook here either. Hold your shepherds accountable to this. Demand, like Jesus does of Peter, that we show our love for him and for you by feeding you a steady, healthy diet of God's word. And stay hungry for it. Stay hungry for it. And as you evaluate future elders of this church, evaluate how, evaluate how well those brothers are first and foremost feeding their own souls with the sustenance of God's word so that they can in turn feed you. And remember that, remember that caring for 
one another with the word just isn't the responsibility of the elders. It's your job too. It's your job too. When we place our faith in Christ, he ushers us into a new community. That's what's implied through that corporate image of of a flock of sheep that Jesus uses. And that new community finds expression here in the local church. And the primary way that the chief shepherd calls his sheep to love other sheep in our fold is with his word. You know, Stacy and I have been members of, of UBC for seven years now. I've had the privilege of, of serving on staff here for five and a half of those years, and over two years as one of your elders. And one of the best ways that I have seen you grow as a church over that time is, how, is in how well you do this very thing. Over the past seven years, our church's growing culture of discipling has been such an encouragement to me as one of your pastors. I've loved hearing, I've loved hearing reports of church members meeting together regularly to read and apply the Bible with one another. Of Danny Wright or Ed Ray or or Cliff Hughes, or Frank Hannon, or Catherine Brill, or Carolyn Wilcox, or Casey Rayner, or Glory Daniel, or I could go on and on, regularly meeting with other members of this church simply to do spiritual good for them by feeding them the good food of God's word. As the years go on, more and more of you are laboring in this kind of work. Keep that up. Keep that up. Do more of it. Don't stop feeding one another like that. When I come back and visit, I want to hear more reports of that. Just imagine what what UBC would look like if every member of this church committed to meet together with another member of this church just to spiritually nourish one another with the word. If every single one of us took seriously that promise we make to one another in our church covenant to study God's word together. Imagine how much more we would look like Christ and demonstrate his love to our neighbors, our coworkers, and our classmates. Member of UBC, if you say you love Jesus, then he expects you to be feeding his sheep. It's how we demonstrate that we're now part of that new community, that we're now part of the family. But that's not all that our chief shepherd expects from us. And that leads us to our final point. So requirement number three, follow his lead. Verses 18 and 19 show, show just how much Loving Jesus would require from Peter in the end. The time was coming when Peter would be bound, taken against his wishes, and killed for the sake of the gospel. For Peter, old age would not bring serenity and retirement, but suffering and martyrdom. In the ancient world, stretch out your hands, which Jesus uses to describe Peter's death there in verse 18, was language used to refer to crucifixion. 
The stretching took place when a condemned prisoner was tied to the cross member and forced to carry his cross to the place of his execution. The wood was placed on the prisoner's neck and shoulders and his arms tied to it and then he would be led away to his death. This was the same thing that the Roman soldiers forced upon Jesus at, at his crucifixion. So in this verse, Jesus is effectively telling Peter that to love a crucified Savior would eventually lead him to his own cross. Peter himself, he understood this. He lived and he served Jesus for three more decades with this prediction hanging over his head. And in 2 Peter 1.14, as, as Peter drew closer to the end, he confirmed that he would die such a death. And by the time John's gospel had been written, Jesus' prediction had had come true. It had come to pass. Early Christian tradition tells us that Peter died by crucifixion in Rome, a prisoner under the rule of the emperor Nero, probably upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified right side up like his Savior. But Peter's death was, was not in vain. Just as Jesus' death on the cross would glorify God, so too would Peter's death on the cross glorify God. Not because Peter's death accomplished the same purposes as Christ, but because Peter loved Jesus so supremely, so supremely that he was willing to lay down his life for him. That's how John understood Peter's death, which is, why he includes that little interpretive note in verse 19. I imagine it was a sobering thing for Peter to hear his friend, Jesus, tell him that loving him would eventually lead to his death. But such is the price of following a crucified Savior, isn't it? In fact, his Prediction of Peter isn't so different than the prediction he makes of all of us who claim to be his followers. For it was Jesus who says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Brothers and sisters, we should not be surprised when persecution like this comes for us. This right here is the cost of our discipleship. Not all of us will suffer and die the way Peter did, but if we are faithful to follow Christ, he will require us to carry a cross with him and for him. And Jesus knew there'd be a part of Peter that wouldn't want to go down that road. Someone else would stretch out his hands and carry him where he didn't want to go. The same was true of Christ when he prayed for his own cup to pass. And so it will be with all of us who follow his steps. When suffering for Christ's sake comes, it will come at our expense. And yet, verse 19, John said that Peter's death would glorify God. 
The way he says it seems to imply that he considers every Christian's death and suffering as appointed for the glory of God. The only difference is, with what kind of death will we glorify God? With what kind of suffering will you and I glorify God? Brothers and sisters, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Will you show God great in the way that you suffer for him with your life? It won't be easy. Jesus requires us to follow him down a perilous road that is filled with danger, toil, and suffering. Peter himself called it a fiery trial in 1 Peter 4.12. But don't forget, don't forget who it is leading us down that road. For the same one predicting Peter's death in these verses is the same one who'd already conquered his own. Guys, we don't just follow a crucified Savior. We follow a resurrected one. We follow the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. Even though he dies, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So if loving Jesus leads you to your grave one day, then you can be certain that one day he's going to lead you out of it. One of my favorite books is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We talk a lot about it at UBC, don't we? The story is about a man named Christian who leaves the city of destruction to journey to the celestial city. And as he journeys, he faces much suffering and hardship in pursuit of Christ. When he and his traveling companion, Faithful, arrive at a place called Vanity Fair, the danger reaches new heights as Christian watches Faithful put on trial by an angry mob, and murdered. Bunyan narrates the, the harrowing scene like this. Then went the jury out, whose names were Mr. Blind Man, Mr. No Good, Mr. Malice, Mr. Loveless, Mr. Live Loose, Mr. Heady, Mr. High Mind, Mr. Enmity, Mr. Liar, Mr. Cruelty, Mr. Hate Light, and Mr. Implacable who everyone gave in his private verdict against him among themselves and afterwards unanimously concluded to bring him, faithful, in guilty before the judge. And first, Mr. Blind Man, the foreman, said, I see clearly that this man is a heretic. Then said Mr. No Good, away with such a fellow from the earth. I, said Mr. Malice, for I hate the very looks of him. Then, said Mr. Lovelust, I could never endure him. Nor I, said Mr. Liveloose, for he would always be condemning my way. Hang him, hang him, said Mr. Hetty. A sorry scrub, said Mr. Highmind. My heart rises against him, said Mr. Enmity. He is a rogue, said Mr. Liar. 
Hanging is too good for him, said Mr. Cruelty. Let's dispatch him out of the way, said Mr. Hatelight. Then, said Mr. Implacable, might I have all the world given me? I could never be reconciled to him. Therefore, let us quickly bring him in, guilty of death. And so they did. He was presently condemned to be had from the place where he was to the place from whence he came, and there to be put to the most cruel death that could be invented. They therefore brought him out to do with him according to their law. First they scourged him. Then they buffeted him. Then they lanced his flesh with knives. And after that they stoned him with stones. Then pricked him with their swords. And last of all, they burned him to ashes at the stake. Thus came faithful to his end. Friends, this is the way of love for Christ. Following him will mean the world will hate you. They may stretch out our hands and carry us where we do not want to go. But when that day comes, remember that to be hated by the world is to be loved by the very one who has overcome it. For the one who calls us to follow him is faithful. And death doesn't get the final word over those who love him. Faithful's death isn't where his story ends. Immediately afterward, Christian sees this. Now I saw that there stood behind the multitude a chariot and horses, waiting for Faithful, who so soon as his adversaries had dispatched him, was taken up into it, and straightway was carried up through the clouds with sound of trumpet, the nearest way to the celestial gate. Brothers and sisters, that is ultimately where the way of love for Jesus leads. It leads us to him and to that happy land where he dwells forever. For the good shepherd will never fail to lead every last one of his sheep home, even in death. So I ask you, one last time, do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him? Then receive his mercy. Feed his sheep. And follow his lead. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for a shepherd who is faithful to bring his sheep home. We thank you for his tender mercy. We thank you that he has fed us and sustained us and saved us by his own flesh and blood. We praise you that, that he is with us all the way until the end. Father, we pray that, that your word 
would raise our affections for him, that it would deepen our dependence and our devotion on him. God, that you would help us, that you would help UBC to love him more. Help us to taste and see his mercy, to taste and see his goodness, and to follow his lead no matter where it takes us. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.